Welcome to the NC4 Podcast. We exist to know Christ and make Him known. Discover the power of a connected life by listening to this message from God's Word. We're going to be carrying on this morning with our DNA series. We're taking a few weeks to really delve deep into what is the DNA of this organism, a local church called New Covenant Christian Community. What are the things that have characterized this body in the way it's developed and thrived and that we want to pass on to the next generation as the Lord multiplies us and gives us fruit, because that's what I believe He wants to do. So, we saw last week that knowing our DNA is important because our DNA shapes who we're becoming. It determines key strengths and it reveals potential weaknesses for us to be aware of so that we can develop them. And I really believe this is an opportune moment because the Lord is taking us back to our roots so that He can bear new fruit through us in the future of this church. And so, as we've been having this discussion as elders and looking back on the history of the church and those moments that have really typified NC4 at the height of its calling, five DNA traits have emerged through that discussion. And so, in the first message, we looked at how NC4 is a church family, a multi-generational household of God. And then in the next week, we looked at how NC4 is eucharismatic. We believe in the convergence of the ministry of the Word, of sacrament, and the Holy Spirit. And so, over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at the remaining three, the first being the presence of God that we're a church that values and pursues the manifest presence of the Holy Spirit in our gatherings and in the exercise of the gifts. The second is unity, that we're a church that has always sought relationship between churches and between church streams. But for today's message, we're going to be looking at Scripture. In some ways, this is maybe the most obvious of the five. That's arguable. But what's for sure is that many people who know of NC4, know because of the strength of Pastor Jack's teaching gift. And I know for me growing up, that was true, that that his teaching gift was impacting on my life. Um, And anytime I had a question about, well, what does that mean in the Bible? I would either talk to Grubby or I would think, what would Grubby say about this? And so, this is one of the things that has characterized the ministry of NC4 and made it what it is as a church. And so, we've been known for that as a strength. But, the actual DNA trait of Scripture goes a lot deeper than just the formal Sunday morning gathering, preaching, or teaching. It's all about the foundation that we cling to above all else. What we build our lives on and what we proclaim as good news to the world. And so, this is talking about far more than just what uh, a pastor does on a Sunday morning. This is talking about the calling of every single Christian to proclaim the message about Jesus in accordance with the gifts that they've been given. And so, as we explore this DNA trait of ours today, we're going to be looking at the fact that we receive the Word, we cling to it, we live the Word, and we proclaim the Word. We're going to be reading from 2 Timothy, starting in chapter 3, verse 12, up until chapter 4, verse 5, and I'll just 
give you a little context before we do that, that Paul, the apostle, is writing from prison at the end of his life, and he's writing to his young protege, Timothy, who is a pastor in Ephesus, which is in modern-day Turkey. And these are some of the final words that we have from Paul to his beloved son in the faith as Paul is awaiting execution at the hands of the Roman state. And so, here's what he says. All who desire, in other words, all who intend to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, will be persecuted. While evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God or person of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I charge you, and this is very strong language here, it's courtroom language, I solemnly adjure you in the presence of the following witnesses, and here are his witnesses, in the presence of God and Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and by his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season. In other words, when it's convenient. Be ready out of season when it's inconvenient. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. So, this passage begins with a kind of promise that I can almost guarantee you don't have framed anywhere on your walls. Paul tells us plainly, if you are the kind of person who seriously intends to live a life for God alone, you're going to ruffle feathers. People are going to want to get you out of the way. There's nothing more inconvenient than a principled person. When you think about Jesus, do you think he went to the cross for stroking lambs and, you know, uh, uh, inviting children to come sit on his knee and for, um, you know, uh, telling people to think about lilies in the fields? Jesus went to the cross because to live for God as your only Lord violently and radically disrupts the way of this world. Why? Because it challenges idols. And as we've said, Paul is writing this last of his letters from prison, awaiting execution in Rome, and Acts uh, tells us the background of why he found himself in prison. The fact was that he was preaching that this man, Jesus, was in fact Lord, not Caesar. 
and that he rose from the dead, and that this was all in accordance with the scriptures. And that's what got Paul killed, just like his master. So, if you think about it, who wanted to get rid of Jesus? Whom did his ministry upset? Well, it upset the religious people, and they colluded with the state, and it upset the state. This, the state. Don't forget that it wasn't the unbelieving world that initially had a problem with Jesus, but it was the Bible believers. If you ask who put Paul in prison, if you read the story in Acts, it's the same answer. And so Paul, just like Jesus, tells us that to face this kind of reaction is normal for the one who sets his face to follow Jesus. Why? Because it speaks to your ultimate allegiance. It speaks to your ultimate loyalty and your ultimate object of worship, which of course dethrones every other idol. And so, that kind of life threatens idols all over the place. And when you threaten a, when you threaten a person's idols, that's what brings out the worst in them. So, should we expect any different if we choose to live a life authentically for Jesus? Now, that's the reality that Paul assures us, but Paul assures us just as Jesus did. So, how does he tell Timothy to respond to this reality, which he says, by the way, this is going to get worse and worse? He tells him to turn to the scripture that he has received to live it, and to carry on proclaiming it to everyone patiently and in a way that they can understand. If you think about it, that's pretty strange advice. Timothy, this message that is going to upset everybody, it's going to maybe, you know, threaten your life. How do you respond to that situation? By grabbing onto it all the more, by proclaiming it and explaining it all the more. And so, why in the world should Timothy have listened to this advice? And why in the world should you and I listen to such advice? Well, the first reason is to turn anywhere else as our ultimate authority simply doesn't make sense. When Paul references the scriptures, of course, he's talking about the Hebrew scriptures, the only Bible that existed at the time of that writing. It's, it's what we Christians often call the Old Testament. And so, the ones that Timothy grew up on, that he was taught, that he memorized as a child, the ones that had been handed down to him through generations of saints before him, and which he had received as words from God. And today, we hold in our hands or we hold in our smartphones those same writings handed down through generations that we have received as the Word of God. And of course, those include the testimonies about Jesus' life by those that were eyewitnesses. And it, it includes the, the writings of the, the, the architects of the early church. And so, Paul tells Timothy that when you face persecution, turn to Scripture. Which is the very thing that makes people so upset. Why? Why does, this, why does Scripture get people so upset? Uh, 
Why does Paul tell him to turn to them if it makes them so upset? It's not because the scripture will tell you how to escape your specific situation. It's not because the scripture will tell you every uh, way to solve your problems. It's not because it's a manual to answer every single question of human life. It's because they are the writings that can make you wise for salvation in Jesus Christ. There's lots and lots of words that can make you wise. When you go to study at Oxford or Cambridge, if you study history or law, um, you say, I read history. I read law. And so the fact is that the courses mostly um, are made up of reading deeply in the subject so that you become wise in the important writings of that subject. And so it's true that all truth is God's truth, and there's plenty to learn even about God from all sorts of sources, and, and that's what we call general revelation. But the church maintains that there's one truth that can only be found in Scripture. There's one truth that you can only be, be made wise to in Scripture, and that's the fact that salvation is in Christ Jesus alone. And so, in the face of persecution, what happens is, or, or, or social unrest, or, or war, or persecution, or famine, or, or revolution, whatever it is, we're apt to think that the wisdom that we need to get out of that situation, the, the, the wisdom that we need for salvation in that moment is to be found in history, or law, or political theory, or military tactics, or, or, or medicine, or science. But what Paul knew is that our true salvation from the true source of all our ills is to be found in Christ Jesus alone. And so that is a revelation that we receive from Scripture alone, from God's self-revelation in His Word. You can't get there any other way. And so that's the audacious claim that this book that we call the Bible, the, 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 the book, <laughs> um, is making. And it's a claim that's too big to ignore. And I love the analogy uh, that was given by Rowan Williams, the former Archbishop of Canterbury, that uh, the Magi that we read about in the, the Nativity stories, the wise men who uh, were exemplars of uh, the, the, the wisdom of the world, everything, all the knowledge and learning that, that could be gained from the natural world. And it was uh, so great that it was enough to take them uh, to the right region where they knew a king was to be born, and they got that simply by studying the stars. But they needed scripture to get to the manger. Nature took them to the right region, but they needed scripture to get to the king himself. And so I pray that in all these world convulsions, all these threats and times of great offense and, and, and danger, that we ask ourselves, where will we turn? What words will we cling to? for meaning and purpose and guidance. And, I, and my prayer is that we would say, just like the Apostle Peter said, when, when Jesus had become offensive to the crowds and they began to turn away to other things, and Jesus said, will you turn also? And Peter said, Lord, where else can we turn? You have the words 
of eternal life. And so we receive the word handed down to us as the word of God by faith. It requires trust. It requires faith. But we cling to them because through them, we have the revelation of Christ Jesus. And so the question is, have you received it? Have you received these words as God's words? Because if you have, you should expect that you're going to learn something new once in a while, no matter how far advanced you are in this Christian life, that you'll be learning continually because this is God's words we're dealing with. You should expect that they will offend you at times. They'll offend your sensibilities. They'll, they'll cut beyond your understanding. And so you can ask yourself, when's the last time I changed my mind about something because of what I read in Scripture? When's the last time that Scripture challenged me, exhorted me, reproved me, instructed me? If these are the words of God, then where else can we turn? These are the words of eternal life. And so, should we not look first to Scripture for the guidance and meaning that we desire in life? Should this not be our ultimate authority? Cling to these words and trust them because, as Paul says, they are breathed by God. Now, the second reason that Paul advises Timothy to turn to Scripture is that he says it is profitable. Well, in what sense? Well, some people would have you believe that it's profitable in the sense that it teaches you, quite literally, how to make profit, how to be prosperous, to live life well, to be healthy, to be successful. And the funny thing is that it actually does teach us those things, but from a radically different worldview, a radically countercultural worldview. We recently did a series on Jesus's masterclass in the School of Life, the, the, the Sermon on the Mount. And what Jesus says is that the most valuable thing, this is the foundation of his worldview. And you won't understand the way he sees things and what he teaches without getting this, that what, what Jesus says is that the most important thing is to be pervaded with God's kingdom love, to have a kind of life that is saturated by God's kingdom love. That was the foundation of his worldview, to be soaked in God's reality. And if that's true of you, if you find yourself in the kingdom pervaded with that kind of love, then no matter what other circumstances you find yourself in, you are rich, you're blessed, you're, 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 uh, you're um, in the path that leads into greater and greater life. And so this is exactly what Paul is echoing here, that if you want that kind of life, which is indestructible for all eternity, which is solid and that nothing can steal, the way to achieve it is by Scripture. Like we saw last week, to actually receive the Word, you can't just listen to it and agree. It has to actually affect your life. Anything less than that shows that it it hasn't actually been received as God's word. And so, it must cause action. Otherwise, it shows you haven't really received the word. And so, I used the example last week of um, if my wife, who's pregnant, asks me for a glass of water uh, because she's pregnant and she's always thirsty, 
My simply nodding and agreeing and, and meditating on her words. Well, that doesn't show that I've received and understood what she was asking of me. The only way that that is evidenced is that I actually get up and get her a glass of water, right? And so here's the point. Because the word is living, it must be lived in order to be believed. Because the word is a living word, it must be lived to be believed. Now, Jesus told his disciples in John 8, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Now, most people know those words, that the truth will set you free. Not many people know that Jesus is the one that said them. And notice what he says. He says that you abide in his word and you disciple yourself to him. In other words, your life is dedicated to obeying from obeying him, learning from him, so that you can become like him. Then you will know the truth. And then that truth will set you free. And so, did you know that even the Bible, even the written word of God can become an idol if it stops you from coming to the word made flesh? Jesus Christ, uh, Jesus challenged the Pharisees saying, you, you search the scriptures because you believe that in them you will have eternal life. And all the while you refuse to come to me that I may give you life. See, scripture had become an idol to them. And that's why Jesus angered them so much, because he threatened their precious idols. And so, as we read these words, the way to know that this is true, the, way, the ultimate way to know that Scripture is true is because as you enter into it, as you live it, you encounter the reality of God. You encounter the reality of Jesus Christ. And so, that's why we believe it's so crucial for us as a church to be biblical in everything that we do, everything uh, that we, the ways we gather, how we operate to seek to be biblical, because without that word as our foundation for action, we have no hope of doing anything meaningful. We have no hope of setting anybody free from anything. You see, all these services and songs and sermons and rituals and disciplines and study and, you know, Churchy language, all of it is completely and utterly worthless if we miss the reality of Jesus Christ. And I say that as a pastor, which is pretty much the churchiest thing you can be, apart from a monk, I guess, but <laughs> what an utter waste of time if it's not leading us deeper into the reality of the living word. The Word made flesh in Jesus Christ. And you see, the Word is alive. He is our living hope, First Peter says. And therefore, as we do what He says and we live His Word, we come to know Him and we gain His freedom. And so, it's by living Scripture that we become everything Jesus intends for us. So, because of the preciousness of the word and the, the profitability of the word in shaping our lives, Paul exhorts Timothy in the strongest of terms. He says, preach the word, proclaim it. And he says, it doesn't matter whether it's convenient or, or more likely whether it's inconvenient. Preach it. 
Because it's good news that deserves to be shared no matter the reaction, no matter the circumstances, no matter whose feathers it ruffles. Hebrews tells us that Scripture is living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword. And what does that mean? What does a double-edged sword do? Well, it cuts both ways. And so, Scripture is incisive. It cuts into our hearts. Scripture cuts in the convenient times, the in-season times when it's nice and respectable and, and, and uh, you know, it, it advances you in society to be a Christian. Why does it cut in those times? Because it offends our religiosity. It tells us that we are, in fact, sinners deeply in need of a Savior. It reveals our sin. It reveals our hypocrisy. It smashes our idols. And there's nothing more offensive to a religious person than to smash their idol. But God will not settle for any idol other than himself, any other object of worship other than himself. And so, Scripture cuts in the convenient times, but it also cuts in the inconvenient times, those times when it is detrimental to your life to be a Christian, where in fact it may mean losing your life. Why is it detrimental? Sorry, why does it cut in those times? Because it cuts away the false promises of the world. It cuts away false allegiances and false hope that is offered to us by the world, and it gives us a hope that is indestructible. And you know what? There is no more sub- there's nothing more subversive and inconvenient to the state, to those in power, than to face a person whose allegiance and hope belong to something that they, that they can never challenge, that they can never take away. Those kinds of people are dangerous. And so what all this means is this. The proclamation of the word is a Christian's dangerous calling. To proclaim the word is a Christian's dangerous calling. But here's the thing. (laughs) Me saying that doesn't give us license for a lot of what goes under the name of preaching the word. This does not give us license to be as obnoxious and stubborn, as obtuse as we want to, as long as we're preaching the word. So that's why Paul adds that we have to do it with complete and perfect patience and teaching. Remember that Jesus was full of truth and grace. And you have to keep those two in balance at all times. If you neglect one in favor of the other, you actually lose both. And so, patience doesn't shove someone, doesn't shove anything down someone's throat. No matter how delicious that thing may be. (laughs) Teaching doesn't force an idea on someone before they're ready to understand it, no matter how brilliant it is. You see, Christianity is a faith that seeks understanding. That's why it's important for every people to have the scriptures in their own language, because what's important is not just being able to recite the words, but to understand what they mean. Christianity has always been a translating faith. Right from the very beginning, even the words that are recorded of Jesus in the New Testament are translated into Greek from his original Aramaic that he would have spoken. And so, in preaching the word, 
We are to apply patience, which means dealing with someone where they are, not expecting them to move quicker than they can. But it's also our duty to apply teaching, helping people to understand. And you do that by your choice of language, translating ideas and terms into things that people can understand and and being mindful of how you communicate and when you communicate. So, who is called to do all this? Well, Jesus' last instructions to his disciples was that they would go into the world and preach this news and make disciples and teach them to obey everything that he had commanded. And so, what that says is that every Christian, every descendant of those disciples, the disciples who made disciples, everyone is a minister of the gospel. Every Christian is a minister of the gospel by birthright. That's something that no one should ever be able to take away from you. Don't let them take it away from you. And you don't need a title. You don't need a degree. You certainly don't need a collar. Proclaiming the gospel is every Christian's joy, every Christian's duty. But here's the thing. Proclaiming the gospel is about far more than what I'm doing right now, the formal preaching and teaching of the Sunday gathering, that is one form. I'm grateful for it. I hope that um, someone listening to this is too. (laughs) That's not the only form of proclaiming the gospel. That's just one of them. 1 Peter 3.15 says that every Christian should be prepared to give an answer for the hope that they have, and to do so with gentleness and respect. And so, that's referencing proclaiming this good news about Jesus in a more conversational setting, in a relational setting. It's the sharing of your reasons for why you have this hope in Jesus Christ. And that's something that every Christian should be able to articulate in some way. And at the very minimum, the one thing that every Christian should be able to articulate is their own testimony, their own witness to Jesus in their life. And so, every Christian should be able to articulate that, but there's, there's another setting with, uh, uh, of teaching and proclaiming Scripture, uh, and this would be a setting like a, uh, a Bible study, or a, uh, 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 a smaller gathering or, or, or group of people who are studying Scripture, because that, that's a different kind of setting, because that requires some preparation, it requires some study, and it requires a certain amount of skill beyond simply telling your own testimony. And beyond that is the public teaching ministry of the Sunday gathering, which takes skill and preparation, and, and uh, especially to do it effectively. And NC4 is a church that has always believed in all three of those, and equipping people in all three of those. And so, what you see is that every Christian is, is, is called to proclaim the word, but not every Christian is called to do that in the same way. Because you know what? God has given each of us specific gifts of ministry, and he's given them in different measure. And so, we're called to use the gifts that we've been given in the measure that we've been given them. And so, even though every one of us is called to proclaim the gospel, we each do that according to the grace that's been given us to do it. 
And so you can't really discern that on your own. Um, you have, well, first of all, it takes discernment. Um, and, and so you have to ask when you perform that act, that gift, is it a task that is graceful or is it grating? And because proclamation or teaching always involves an audience of some sort, you have to discern this with other people. Is your audience grateful for the gift that you're giving them? Does it multiply and bear fruit? Because those are the marks of grace on a thing. But no matter the setting for your gift, you are charged with Timothy. I am charged with Timothy to preach the word, to live it, to cling to it as it's been passed down and to endure the suffering that such a life will attract. Why? Because that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces godly character, and godly character produces hope, which does not let us down. That's Romans 5. You can avoid that suffering if you choose to. You can avoid it by neglecting to proclaim the word. But then again, you won't endure. And so you won't gain the character that will produce the hope that your heart desires. And so, these are signs that you abide in the Word, that you've received it, that you cling to it, that you live it, and that you also speak it. And so, as we close, I just want to encourage us to reflect on a few questions, each of us for ourselves. Am I abiding in His Word? Am I delighting in it? Have I truly received it as God's word? If so, when's the last time I allowed it to challenge me? I allowed it to exhort me, to instruct me, to guide me, to correct me. If I've received this as God's word, what's the last thing the Bible made, my cha- made me change my mind about? Do I believe that Scripture is really profitable for my actual life? Do I allow it to teach me, reprove me, correct me, or do I only allow it to encourage me, to affirm me, and agree with what I already think? Am I growing in my training in godliness? Am I proclaiming this word? And am I willing to endure suffering? For that proclamation. Now, there may be some of us listening this morning who have never entered into that relationship with Jesus by whom we can be saved. And so I want to offer that opportunity this morning as you've been hearing these promises of Scripture and you want to take hold of them for your own life. Well, the way you do that is by committing yourself to Him. And if you desire that right now, He has already been working in your heart and drawing you to himself. And so he is inviting you in right now. So I encourage you to pray this prayer with me if that's you. It's a simple prayer of commitment. You can pray, Lord Jesus, I am sorry for the way I have lived my life. Please forgive me. 
thank you that you died on the cross to forgive me of all my sin. I believe that you rose again from the dead to give me new life. Jesus, send me your Holy Spirit. Make me your child and make me a brand new person. I trust you with my life. And I commit my life to you from this day forward. Amen. Thank you for listening to the NC4 podcast. For more info, visit our website at nc4.org. We believe in the power of a connected life. If you prayed to give your life to Jesus today, we'd love to help you walk it out together. Just text the word Jesus to 610-816-6062.